family ties. I wasn't sure what was more surprising, that the Praetor himself would call upon a lowly private investigator like myself, or that he would call me the day after I saw his assassination on the evening news feeds. It had been the top story for the past twenty hours. I must have seen clips of that Fox's blood boiling from his ears and staining his black and white fur a dozen times since then. They said that his microbots had been hacked by his own doctor. Instead of maintaining his brain and body against the ravages of age, they disintegrated his neural tissue. Even the best medical science of the Federation could not repair that much damage. Fortunately for my state of mind, he explained how he managed this feat of self-necromancy a second after I answered. I am the personality simulation of Praetor Senyan Terraformer de Argentum Adenal, carrying out my last will and testament. That figured, of course someone as rich and powerful as a Praetor would be capable of commissioning a personal sim, and now that I thought about it, most of the ones I'd seen before were former Praetors or other notable members of the Argentum genus. In the event of my death by the intent of another being, I set aside a sum of 100 kilo PCs to hire the most qualified private investigator available to determine the identity of whomever was ultimately responsible for my death. Well, that's interesting, I replied, but what makes you think I'm the most qualified for the job? The simulation perked as I clearly triggered some sort of response path. You are the private investigator known as Retal Erin, are you not? Primary phenotype, feline. Birthplace, SETI Outcast Colony number 283. Date, approximately 4-18-1727. Most notable, profession, detective, experienced roughly 126 years. Pretty much accurate, I admit. It was rather difficult to synchronize the calendars of the various outlier worlds with those of the Tor worlds linked by the Wormgate nest but that was close enough for my purposes. I had started my career as a professional finder of evidence for criminal cases before I had become an immortal Federation citizen. Back on that primitive little mud ball, the Federation had dubbed SETI Colony 283, but most of its inhabitants called dirt, having been there long enough to forget that there were other inhabited planets out in the universe. Still, there was the occasional contact with off-world traders that the government tried to keep secret. I did come across a group of these off-worlders on one of my cases, and I had no choice but to leave with them or be disappeared by the local emperor's agents. It was rather uncommon for anyone, immortal or mortal, to hold down the same career for more than fifty years by the capital's reckoning. Those born to the Federation grew up accepting the idea that they'd get bored doing the same thing for decades on end and couldn't imagine keeping it up for centuries. But on my former home planet, people were expected to stick with the same career for life. To be honest, We'd only just recently moved past the species-based caste system espoused by the original colonists. I confirmed the digital ghost assessment. 
not bothering to explain why I'd been in this job so long, and asked why it wanted my help. After all, I explained, you had the full resources of the civil forces and the Federal Guard to investigate the cause of my your demise. The civil forces and the Federal Guard are presently under the control of my kin, the simulation answered, and I believe one of them was responsible. For a brief time, I thought I'd left such things behind when I ditched my old planet. Here, where there's no oh, little need for struggle and strife, and cameras are everywhere so you can't get away with anything, I thought this world would be free of murder. But of course, that wasn't quite the case. I mean, sure, there's a much lower violent crime rate, but there's still some things that people find to be worth killing over. And just like back home, it was often the ones with the most to gain who were most likely to think they could get away with it. Unfortunately for me, the Praetorian Succession wasn't a straight line like most major titles on my home. Technically, it was elected. But everyone knew that only the high families of the genus Argentum had the Federation-wide influence to swing such an election. Even if I narrowed down the possible subjects to Senyan's immediate family, I ended up with more than 50 offspring by a dozen different mates and 19 siblings to investigate. Even with AI search agents, it was a long list to work through. While my software ran through the list of potential masterminds, I decided to approach the case from the other end. The civil authorities had determined that the parahuman who metaphorically pulled the trigger was the Praetor's personal physician, Kelton de Natale A. Jonah. Unfortunately for my investigation, he had already been tried and executed. Rather rapidly, I might suppose. Prevailing theory was that he was involved in some new cult or something, that being the default media bogeyman ever since the Mimetic Quarantine Act that got my ancestors and so many other deviants dumped on some frontier world with no real technology. Conveniently, the Act also placed a media blot on any details of the perpetrators of suspected ideological terrorism on the grounds that the information might carry a meme virus. As it was, I was lucky to find his name so quickly. <sighs> the major news sites had been given enough information to know that Senyan's doctor was believed to have done the deed, but nothing about the doctor's identity. I'd found a news article that was over 50 years old about the Praetor's new physician. Kelton was of Mustaline ancestry, some weasel blend, Centauri born and bred, and his name was on the public citizen's record as having died about a week after the Praetor. I also couldn't find any record of Senian changing doctors in the last half-century, so it was most likely him. What confirmed it was the lack of information on any official site that would have told me something about him. Nothing on the Wikipedia Stellarica, nothing on the university that the news page said he studied at, nothing from the notable personages of the Natalie or Jonah genera, at least until I did some digging into the past. You see, the thing about a decentralized network like the Federation Mesh 
It's really hard to destroy any information in its totality. A few queries on secure networks, and I had archived copies of every page that had information on Kelting de Natalie Ajuna. I even found some cracker who had his transaction records up to the month before he was killed. Technically, it was an anonymous wallet, but it was accessed through his BCI, which pretty much meant that it was his. And there's a little thing about cryptocurrencies like the Federation's production credit that many people seem strangely ignorant of. They remember who has owned them. Every Fed PC file that changes virtual hands has something called a blockchain, which carries the ID number of every wallet as has passed through. There's no database with the ID of every cryptocurrency wallet in use in the Federation Tor worlds or anything like that. But a lot of people put their wallet ID on their personal sites in public view so people can send them money. The largest transaction on the record was a deposit two weeks ago from a source that I couldn't quite identify, but followed a day later by an almost as large withdrawal to a wallet that I quickly tied to a discount cyber surgeon in one of the outlying small towns by the name of Lucas Kellner. Kellner had moderate online reviews on the mesh, but comparing his lifestyle to what he would would have made off the jobs the reviews mentioned, something did not add up. I figured that he had to be taking some work on the grayer side of things to afford that interstellar vacation he took photos of on social media. I decided to pay Dr. Kellner a visit and took a mate of train out to the town. His office was near the edge of the city limits. I noticed a distinct lack of surveillance sensors in the area. The only ones around seemed to be tied to Kellner's building and thus under his control. It was a cheap free e-fab, the kind that lasted barely more than a few decades and would need to be replaced fairly soon, but was enough to exert ownership over a plot of land. I went in through the front door and spoke to the owner. His digital receptionist kept me waiting for almost half an hour before letting me see him. Lucas Kellner was a servine male who had replaced his antlers with a pair of fractal arms, branching off into increasingly small armatures tipped with a variety of tools and jets for surgical instruments. Good afternoon, sir, he said as I was let into his office room and took a seat. How may he improve you today? Actually, I replied, I was wondering if you could tell me anything about one of your recent clients. I noticed a small, nervous twitch as my question registered with him. There are customer reviews of my work on several sites. I'm wondering about one who didn't post any reviews, I continued calmly. One Kelton de Natalie A. Jonah. Kellner looked very nervous at this point. Some of my clients appreciate their privacy. They pay additional credits to keep the details between the two of us, and I am not inclined to betray their trust. Something wasn't quite right. His ear was flicking back and forth, and I couldn't tell why. Listen, I warned him. This is very important, and if you don't share the information I'm looking for, there could be very dire consequences. And not just for you. He shuddered as I spoke to him. Then suddenly, he coughed loudly, making me jump for a second. 
As I, he drew his hand back from his mouth, I thought I saw something red glisten at large. Moss's palm. It's all right. There will be consequences if I tell you too. Without warning, he jumped at me, barely missing as I jumped, jumped out of the way in time to avoid the bared scalpels on his bionic antlers. Despite appearances, Kellner wasn't the only augmented parahuman in the room. Since emigrating to the Federation, I had not only installed the standard BCI and longevity microbots, but I'd also had my peripheral nerves myelinated to an almost extreme degree and attached an autonomic override module to my spine. If my BCI picked up a threat, it would send the appropriate signals to my override, and my body would react before my conscious mind, or even my biological reflexes with their boosted neurons could register it. There's been a few embarrassing situations in the past, but the mods have saved my not-quite-immortal life often enough to make up for them. I stood there in the office, ducking and weaving automatically to avoid having any of the cyborg servine's surgical instruments hit me, or get any of my his bodily fluids on me. A much more difficult task now that blood was streaming out of his nose and ears. At one point, one of his graspers grabbed something off the back of his head and threw it at me. The override made me catch it and throw it aside before it could do anything. I jumped past Kellner to land on top of his desk as he started to collapse. The microbots in his system finally disintegrating his neurons to the point where he could no longer stand. The manner of death was too similar to the Praetors to be a coincidence. If it were the same, his hat and microbots would break down his brain into an unrecognizable mush within the hour, and the rest of his tissues would follow over the course of the next day. Senyan's body had only been presentable enough for a funeral due to the quick application of an electromagnetic pulse strong enough to fry all the electronics in his body. One bodyguard who tried to save him without putting on gloves first had to have an arm amputated and all her cyberware replaced. Seeing how Day Natalie was dead, I was certain now that something wasn't quite what it seemed. I tried to remember exactly when Kellner had started showing signs of hostile microbot infection. Then, not trusting my suggestible meat brain, I called up the last few minutes of my life log. Like many people over a hundred years old, I knew full well the limitations of flesh memory and had taken the easy route of setting my BCI up to record all input from my senses to an external memory drive at the base of my skull. Most nights before going to bed, I reviewed my life log and backed up important events to a personal cloud server that I could access from the mesh as needed. But sometimes I witnessed something sensitive which I would not want to be accessible from the mesh at all, so I physically removed the memory cylinder and stashed it in a Faraday safe. As I was reviewing the, my memories of the flight, I got to the point where Kellner threw that thing at me. I paused the memory to get a better look at the object, and to my surprise I found it was a memory cylinder, of a similar type to the ones I used, in fact. Quickly, I followed the arc my 
Hardware remembered to where the cylinder had landed under a bookshelf and recovered it. The ports were a bit dusty, but it was intact and free of microbot-contaminated fluids. I counted myself lucky that he wasn't one of those types who thought sanitary access panels were unsightly. If he'd used a wireless VCI like many people these days, I doubt I'd have been able to safely dig his external memory out of his stall before the microbots destroyed it. The cylinders I used could hold a month's worth of memory. If Kalner hadn't changed or overwritten this one in the two weeks since he'd operated on Dane Natalie, I could have just found my first bit of hard evidence. I left Kellner's disintegrating body in his office. With any luck, the civil authorities wouldn't notice until after I've solved this case. Now I had a lead to follow. Normally, external memory can only be used by the person who made it. Biological brains are too different for the same code to be interpreted by anyone else. But there are some programmers who can make a rough translation and review a fuzzy version of someone else's memories. Naturally, I know one who was willing to help, and who preferred to remain anonymous to protect her identity, as that was slightly on the illegal side of things. I gave her the cylinder, and she slipped into a work simulation to translate the memories. While I waited for her to finish, I started making inquiries to Seuss Phelan's streams on the streets and aisles surrounding the family's arcology, looking for signs of Dr. De Natalie. There were enough free streams to get a general idea of where he had gone in the past month, and the fees to get the details were inconsequential compared to the potential pay for this job. I found that he had gone to a variety of different nightclubs and bars roughly every once or twice a week in the weeks before his death, Never the same place twice, and with no discernible connection between the establishments. I started looking into the other patrons of the establishments. No one other person had attended all of the same places as him, but my recognition software did notice a few mustelids who appeared more than twice, all of whom had the same gait, and one of which was a brightly striped Einmartin with three tails. While it wasn't uncommon to have extra tales added, they were associated with one particular subculture of note. Titsune, those who used nanotech to alter their appearance at will and used the number of tales in their base form as a measure of how far they'd progressed in the mental discipline used to control their technological powers. Fortunately, my contacts had indicated that they didn't hold earn how to alter the way they want into the fifth tale. It was likely that all of the recurring weasels were the same shapeshifter. Unfortunately, while they had used the same body more than once, they had also used a different name each time, and the Titsune Order kept the true identities of their members a secret for their protection. I would have to hope that my interpreter found a hint of their true name and the memories she reviewed. She was working on those memories for a full day before she got back to me. When she reported her finders in her impress 
expression was grave, quite clearly rather shaken by what she had seen. Lucas Telner implanted a remotely triggered explosive into the cerebral tortex of Dr. Keltine de Natalie Ajuna. Crude, but it would effectively annihilate his brain and external memory beyond any hope of recovery. And it used a quantum entangled remote so it wouldn't be traceable in any way. When it was done, de Natalie injected Telner with a syringe of the hat nanobots that killed him later. It didn't make much sense for somebody to willingly implant a remote self-destruct in their own body. There were easier ways to commit suicide. I figured whoever had given de Natalie the money for the procedure had arranged it to protect him backing out or snitching later, and that he'd place similar leverage against Telner. There was definitely more to this than it first seemed. Did either of them mention who had paid for this invasive surgery by any chance? Yes, she replied, visibly trying to maintain her calm. They not only said that really Dean Eberstead would appreciate it if he kept this to himself. She actually looked scared now. I looked them up on the dark mesh. There are Kitsune who's been linked to some... Um, Pleasant things. What kind of person hires you for this kind of job? <laughs> the ghost of Senyan Terraformer de Argentum Adenal, I said, half sarcastically. Don't be ridiculous, she snapped. He couldn't have had a simulation made. He was a telepath. I paused, curious. You mind explaining what you mean by that? To make a simulation of a person, you need to do two things, she informed me. First, you need to have a VCI recording a life log, and second, you need to get a high-def brain scan to make that a computer model capable of interpreting that life log. Even I did not need to be told that having a machine read a telepath's brain would break their connection to their bonded twin, reducing them from a vital component of interstellar communications to a mundane member of Federation society. I had not known this about Senyan, but now I had a hunch on who killed him, and I was willing to stake my life on it. The bar was crowded and noisy, dozens of parahumans and uplifts getting intoxicated on a hundred different substances and chatting each other up. I had staked out a booth in the corner and placed a white noise generator under the table, obscuring whatever I would say to this casual observer. Halfway into my first drink, Rilladin Everstead arrived. They were in one of the more nondescript forms I had seen on the streams. An anonymous common brown weasel in a black dress suit. They sat down and we chatted about meaningless things while our hearing adjusted in a noise generator. Then once I could understand what they were babbling about the ZG fights, we got down to business. So, I interjected, I hear you're the one to goat when you need a job done right. I find the right people, Rilladin interrupted me. I act as an intermediary between clients who wish to remain anonymous and the people they don't want associated with them. You give me the details and I find the workers who can get it done. 
They don't know who you are just as much as they don't know who they are. Plausible deniability, I said. Nice. Now I offered a hypothetical. So, you mean to say that if, for instance, a member of one of the families wanted his twin brother dead, you would be the only one who knew who was ultimately behind it, and everyone who was involved in the assassination attempt? Everstead didn't even flinch. Hypothetically, yes, that would be the case. But you don't need something that drastic now, do you? My senses picked up some slight movement under the table, but my override didn't think it a threat yet. I pushed further, but what if someone found the workers, as you told them, and were to find you? I mean, nowadays, even with the shape-shifting, they can find out who you are with little effort. Oh, I have methods of making sure they can't talk. Whatever they were moving became fast enough that my override registered a threat at and reacted. I lunged under the table just as an abnormally long finger whipped out a data port connector of some kind. They were pinned to the seat beneath me as the connector clattered to the table. I struggled to pin them down as they arrived beneath me, joints dislocating to wriggle out. I lost my grip for just a moment, but that was enough for Everstead to get free. Their suddenly prehensile tails snatched the thing off the table, but a random corset thoughts in the crowd abruptly grew three-inch claws on his right left hand and sank them into the fleeing weasel's torso. I winced as the crook I'd been trying to hatch suffered serious internal organ damage, but didn't make a sound. The clawed fox motioned for me to follow him as he led the Titsune weasel out the back door, all while the crowd acted like nothing was happening. As soon as we were out of sight of the bar's patrons, the fox's fur changed in color from a mixture of yellow and gray to black underfur with white dart hairs. The characteristic coat of the founder that their Federation ruling descendants all shared. Then I watched, amazed, as his, no, her, body mass shifted away from the shoulders and abdomen to round out her breast and hips, and her one tail split into eight. Everyone knew that the highest rank of the Titsune order was nine tails, and that there was only one confirmed nine tail in known space, though rumor had it there were more outside the Stargate network. This being was in lying to head the entire shape-shifting organization. And she was a silver. In retrospect, I should have been more, much more afraid. What do you want? I asked, wary. The silver vixen dangled the limp weasel to the side while she turned to face me. You can call me Charlene Fairhold de Argentum. Does that sound familiar? I had to think for a minute before I recalled that name. You are one of Praetor Senyan's mates, weren't you? Yes, she replied simply. While we didn't quite diddle on that well, he was still the sire of a dozen of my progeny, and I'm obligated to get to the bottom of his murder. Now, she, gest she gestured 
with a lengthening claw at me. I believe you are saying something about my estimate's twin wanting him dead. I thought carefully before explaining my running hypothesis. Praetor Senyan Simulation hired me to solve the case of his murder. But we, he was a telepath, which would normally preclude creating a simulation. After realizing that, I did some digging and found a short-lived rumor that he had installed a BCI around 30 years ago. Just a couple years after he was elected. Considering what to say next took some time, but when I found my voice again, I added something that I had only speculated so far. I don't know what it's like to share your mind with the most powerful being in the galaxy, but I can't imagine he took it. Well, when his brother suddenly became the most known entity to everyone in the Federation while he remained out of the public eye. Resulting in a falling out so drastic that he would intentionally suffer a bond he's had since re before he was born? Charlene suggested. Her grip on Everstead tightened and the blood flowing from her. Um, their wounds intensified. I was a telepath too, you know. The Eugenics Board wanted to produce more FTL communications nodes by having them breed with one another. When I was chosen to mate with Senyan, I could feel my sister's envy. But we worked it out and went back to being closer to any two individuals have any business being after I got pregnant with octuplets. She let her face show some glimmer of emotion before resuming her prior stoic system. Then she died in a streamer accident. I felt a flash of pain, and then nothing. She was just gone. It felt like I'd lost everything, but every part of my body was still there. In an attempt to cope, I joined the Kitsune Order and submerged myself in the training. I didn't get to eight tails in just three hundred years solely from connections, you know. I guess that the Kitsune's specialized implants were also incompatible with telepathy. They would at the very least need a BCI to control the rest. Isn't that thing a gesture towards the barely conscious body in her hand? Another one of your order? She briefly looked back. We exist to sow chaos, to keep civilization from growing statement, and decaying from idleness. Now, I have no problem with causing a hiccup in monopro production or introducing an anthropophagic symbiont to a regressed planet, but assassinating the Praetor and Replacing him with a fratricidal maniac is too much. Someone that unstable in charge could spell the end for the parahuman species. Charlene sighed. Now, I know you're a bit suspicious of the House of Silver, but the general population's reverence for our dynasty is one of the pillars of the Federation. If we lose it, the only interstellar civilization in the known universe faces collapse. I wasn't too sure about that. My own regressed planet had survived its share of mad rulers, but we were so much short of world-ending technology like the average Federation starship. So, what do you plan to do with them? I asked. Charlene thrust the extended claw she'd pointed at me into Riladin Everstead's brain pan through the jaw. 
They died instantly. I'll dispose of this one. And we'll take care of Yasnar when he gets here for the election. By which she meant Yasnar, Terraformer, de Argentum, Adenal. Senyan's underappreciated twin who had been assigned to the communications department of some undated system that had been in the Federation for just a century or so. As for De Natalie, out of nowhere she produced the data port jack that Everstead had taken out. I presume this is the cubic toggle for the bomb in his head, which, as you should know, is currently cryogenically presumed preserved after separation from his body in accordance with standard capital punishment procedures. In a hundred and fifty years, this case will be up for review, and he might get a chance at a new body if judged to have been falsely accused, or under duress. She palmed the toddle again. It would probably be best if this wasn't publicly known until then. How much did my ex's ghost offer you? I shrugged. One hundred K. I'll match it if you keep this all to yourself for the next 149 years. Seeing how she just casually killed someone permanently, I thought it best to take her offer without further complaint. So yeah, that was back in 1711 post-Exodus. It's now 1860. I kept my word, earned 200,000 production credits, before deducting the not inconsiderable cost of the whole case, and stayed alive. Yasnar arrived at Alpha Centauri a month and a half later, coming off of a 25-year voyage with what some noted as convenient timing, and died a, la- a day later. The official story was that he committed suicide with an explosive bullet, but I have my own suspicions. Less than a century later, there was a popular rebellion on my homeworld. Though the re- Ebels made no secret of the off-world technology they used. They stopped just short of a full coup. The surviving daimyos agreed to sign a charter instating laws more palatable to the Federation. It took only a generation for the world, now called Hitar, to be admitted. I believe a Stargate is well on its way to the system. Before long, the descendants of those I left behind all those centuries ago will get the same Torwell experience I've had for the majority of my life now, for better or for worse. Otherwise, little has changed. Explored space expands about one light year for every three years that pass on the capital. New planets are colonized, whether voluntary or involuntarily, and the House of Silver holds the Federation together in the face of internal strife and the monstrosities that destroyed the original planet Dirt or Earth, as they called in the old ton. I suppose that's the best we can hope for.